Once again, good morning. Well, folks, I, uh, what Advent season is truly complete without a call out to John the Baptist, right? I mean, in some ways, John the Baptist, he's kind of synonymous with Advent, isn't he? You know, I certainly associate his name with the period of Advent. Nothing quite says Advent like John the Baptist. And he's a, he's a fascinating and almost enigmatic figure that we find in Scripture. Um, he's very, very interesting. Um, he was formerly known as John the Catholic, but he became disillusioned with the church and became a Baptist instead. But I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. Um, now, we're going to find out why he's called John the Baptist as we, as we go through this. But all four of the Gospels mention John the Baptist, and they mention him quite extensively. Uh, and three out of the four Gospels mention him in the first chapter of their Gospels. And so this is clearly a sign that he was, he was an important figure. He was an important figure in the, the biblical story. He was an important figure in, in Jesus' coming. Um, we, we learn from that, that reading, right, that he wasn't exactly a flashy dresser, okay? Camel hair and leather belt. He wasn't exactly prone to extravagant dining. Locusts and honey. I'm sure there's a cookbook out there somewhere on how to make the most out of locusts and honey. But he was a very um, simple man. He lived a simple life and spent much of his time in the desert. And so what we find here with Mark's gospel is that Mark, right off the bat, he begins with talking about John the Baptist. Now, Mark's gospel um, is often uh, is seen really as Peter's gospel, who Mark notated for, for Peter. And uh, it's often considered by most that the earliest of the gospels. Okay, so, so Mark's gospel is, is generally considered the earliest. And some people date it even as early as somewhere in the, the 40s AD. That's a very early dating. But if that's the case, think about that. That means that Mark's gospel was written somewhere between 10 and 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. Now that is incredibly close to the events that happened, especially for the ancient times. That's about as good as you can get for eyewitness testimony. Between 10 and 20 years, that's quite amazing. And so... Mark, he begins with a, with a powerful statement. All right? He begins by saying, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so, as is quite Mark's style, he gets straight to the point. There's no kind of waiting to figure out who Jesus is here. He, he gets, gets it out there right off the bat. He says, Jesus is the Son of God. But notice how he launches this gospel. Listen again. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. The beginning. Do we know, are there any other books of the Bible that begin in a similar fashion to that? Genesis, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Any others that ring a bell there? Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, I don't think that's coincidental. I don't think that's coincidental. I think here what's, what Mark is doing, he's, he's trying to make it clear that we are, we're not talking about just a mere human being here. We're talking about God incarnate. Just in those, that very simple opening sentence. 
And in a sense, right, Mark could have stopped there. He could have just stopped there by declaring God is, uh, Jesus is the Son of God and God incarnate. And if that was the case, there would be a lot of us who would be able to say that we have memorized the Gospel of Mark. Be a very simple gospel, right? But he's really got the essentials there. But that's not what he does, of course. What he does is he turns to the prophecy from the Old Testament. And if you've been here over the last few weeks during this Advent season, what we've been doing is we have been looking at a few different prophecies from the book of Isaiah that relate to the coming of Jesus. But this one that Mark start with is actually a mix of prophecies from Isaiah and the prophet Malachi. And these prophecies, unlike the ones we've been looking at over the last few weeks, this, this one primarily relates to John. And John's coming and how he's going to prepare the way for Jesus. So listen to what Malachi says. This is chapter 3 of Malachi, verse 1. Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament. And bear in mind, when Malachi wrote this, he was writing this 400 years plus before John the Baptist or Jesus would arrive on the scene. This is what Malachi says. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So there it is. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So Mark is trying to show us through that prophecy of Malachi that John is the messenger who has been sent ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for his coming. Well, how does he prepare the way? What does John do here to prepare the way, to make way the, straight the way for Jesus to arrive? Well, verse 4 gives us a, uh, an answer here. It says, by preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we're told as the passage goes on in verse 5 that people from all over the Judean countryside and from Jerusalem itself, the big city, were coming out to John in the desert and confessing their sins and being baptized. They were being baptized. Now, baptism is a very exclusive Christian word. We don't really come across baptism in the Bible before we hear about John the Baptist. And this was a new phenomenon that no doubt was divinely inspired. And so, to understand baptism a little bit better, we have to sort of look at some of what was going on in Judaism, in the Jewish faith. And so ritual washing was very common in Judaism at that time, and it was a way to purify oneself. Uh, The thing about that was it was a regular occurrence. So you didn't just kind of purify yourself once through a ritual washing and that was it. No, it was something you did periodically. But here's the big difference with John's baptism. It was a one-time call to a new commitment. And interesting, Gentiles who were converting to Judaism, so non-Jewish people who wanted to become followers of the Jewish faith, they had to go through a similar ritual cleansing. It was somewhat similar to baptism. But interesting, what's John doing here? He's saying that this baptism of repentance also needs to be done by Jewish people. Now, why would he do that when they're already part of God's chosen people? Right? That's, the, that's what the Jewish people believe. They are God's chosen people. 
So why would they have to go through this baptism of repentance? Well, it's because essentially what John is saying here is that being Jewish alone wasn't enough to be counted as a child of God, but instead to be a child of God, there had to be a receiving of a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying a new time is coming, a new way is coming. So do you you see how John is already paving the way for Jesus? This is what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 32. Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And just a little bit later in the Gospel of Mark that we just read from, Jesus says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. So there's a continuity of the same message that John has started here going on with Jesus' ministry. John is essentially, he's paving the way and he's saying that the Messiah, the the Savior is coming and he has a message of repentance. And do you know that's what you do when you repent? All right, the Greek word metanoia means to, to turn around, to turn away, to change. And from a Christian perspective, to repent means you're going in one direction and you turn around and go the other way. This way leads towards death. This way leads to God. And what often happens with us is that we spend a lot of our life walking this way, blindly, not realizing that we're actually going in the wrong direction. But John and Jesus, they call us to repent. And they say, when you do that, this happens. And you start walking in the right direction. What happens is when we walk away from God, this won't lead us to joy. It won't lead us to a fulfilled life. Instead, what it actually does, is it's a path that leads us into death and despair. And the thing is, if you're not actively moving towards God, you will always be drifting away. There's no treading water in the Christian life. There's no just staying put. If you are not actively moving towards God, you will be moving away from him. The tides, if you like, of complacency, of indifference, of procrastination. Anybody a procrastinator here? Okay. They will carry you out to sea and leave you spiritually stranded. And if we're not actively swimming against that, then we will be taken out into this this sea of despair, if you like. You know, the way the ocean works is we have high tide, yeah, and we have low tide. But there's also in the middle a thing called, um, let me show I'm getting my terminology right here, called slack tide, okay, where the tide's not really going out, it's not... Um, it's not coming in. It's just kind of this, this middle ground for a while. In the Christian life, there is no slack tide. There is no neutral ground. There's actually a deadly current in life that wants to drag you under. And we know that that, that tide, that, that current is controlled by the enemy, right? It's controlled by Satan. And he wants to drag you into the ocean if he can. And the thing is, our natural default, if we are left to our own devices, is to drift away from God. And those waters are ready to snatch us up. 
They're waiting, just waiting to grab us and pull us. And so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to show us a, a, a short video here of, uh, this is some real footage of uh, a woman getting dragged out by the sea. Now, we'll preface this by saying she makes it. See, this does not, um, I wouldn't be showing you something that showed the death of somebody. <laughs> but I want you to watch this because I think it pictures really well the Christian life and what can happen if we are not on guard. Notice how all seems well right now. Everything seems relatively safe and harmless. So the waves are coming back for one more, one more go. Okay, that's pretty good. I think we can stop it there. You see what happened there? The first time I watched that, I was, it was quite disturbing to me but to see how quickly a harmless situation turned into a life-threatening situation right there. Like I say, thankfully, they were all okay. But if you notice, there was, there was a deceptive sense of peace, wasn't there there? All seemed well. One lady had her back turned from the ocean, was walking back towards the other couple of women. There was a false sense of security. And then what happened? This wave crept up and dragged that woman. And you see how quickly she was helpless, drifting away on her back into the ocean. If she had been on her own, she would have probably died. That, in a sense, can sum up what can go on in our lives. You see, we can, be, we can call ourselves a Christian, right? And we can say, yes, I believe in Jesus and I believe in the Scriptures, but we can fall into what I call spiritual complacency. Where really, we, we have a faith that is just a faith in word. But it doesn't reflect in our lives. It doesn't change anything in our lives. We actually become rather self-centered and we make our, our religion, our Christianity, a, per, a personal thing. We stop going to church. We just decide, I'm just going to worship on my own. I'm going to listen to some sermons. And it's between me and the Lord. It's not about community. But that's not what we're taught in the Bible. That's not what the, the, the church looks in the book of Acts. It's not what it looks like. Show me in Scripture where it says, and Peter went up to his room and pulled out his laptop and listened to a podcast of his favorite sermon from a mega church. 
and worship to his favorite contemporary Christian band. It's not there, is it? Because that's not what the church is about. I know I'm preaching to the choir here because you are the folks who come to church and God bless you. But there are so many people out there who think it's not about that anymore, that it's not about coming together as the body of Christ. And it's, it's a deep lie. And it helps us fall into spiritual complacency. Where we stop praying, we stop, stop reading scripture, and it becomes a faith of all but name and nothing else. So community is essential in the Christian life. But also this, what is essential is this baptism of repentance through confession that is essential to the Christian life. And you know what it does? When we, when we confess and we get sin off our chest and we get it out in the open, it prepares our hearts to make way for Jesus to work in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Now, not only does John prepare the way for Jesus with his message of a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but he also makes it clear that he, John himself, is only a forerunner. He is not the man himself. You know, people ask John, are you the Messiah? And he said, no, I am not. Listen to what he says in verse 7 and 8. He said, and this was his message. So this is John's message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John is saying, what John is saying here is that there is someone coming who is far greater than him. And remember that John, John himself was a very well-respected, revered figure at this time. He had his own following, his own disciples. And many people considered him a prophet, a holy man. And here he is saying, you know what? You might think I'm something special. I am not the man. You ain't seen nothing yet. You know, there was... Um, <clears throat> One of the greatest jazz pianists in history was a guy called Art Tatum. And Art Tatum had his heyday probably in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And he was a phenomenal, phenomenal jazz pianist with just virtuosic technique, um, unbelievable player. There was another jazz pianist around that time who was probably actually more famous in the world and a tremendous piano player himself by the name of Fats Waller. Okay? Fantastic jazz player. He had a big hit with a song he wrote called Ain't Misbehaving. I'm sure the PC police will have fun with that one day as well. But it's a great song, Ain't Misbehaving. And there's a story that one night Fats Waller was playing in a club. And in walked Art Tatum. And Fats Waller noticed that Art Tatum had walked in and he stopped playing and he said, I'm just a piano player, but tonight... God is in the house. And in a sense, for me, that kind of captures the difference here between John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist, he was good, real good. But he was nothing compared to Jesus. And ironically, in this, this sense, Jesus is God. So really, God really was in the house when we talk about Jesus. Vladimir Horovitz, who was a um, one of the most famous uh, concert pianists, also a contemporary of Art Tatum, he once said that if, Ta- if Tatum were white, no one would be saying, I'm the world's best pianist. He was that good. But John is saying, I'm not the man. I'm not the man. The one to come, Jesus is. And John says, I will baptize you with water, 
But he, as in Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John's water baptism, that's just a a preliminary rite, if you like, in preparation for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that could only happen through Jesus. So to understand this a little bit better, let again, let's go back to the Old Testament. Do you see how there's one big overarching narrative here that links this whole book together? It has one big giant story. All 66 books of it are talking about the same meta-narrative. But let's go to the, uh, the book of Joel, another Old Testament prophet. Book of Joel. And if we jump to chapter 2, verse 28 to 32, listen to what Joel prophesies here. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I will pour out my spirit on all people. So with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, John is essentially saying that Jesus will usher in what are called the last days. It's the countdown to when God is going to redeem all of creation. The countdown has begun. So do you see now why the Gospel of Mark, why he begins with John? Mark begins with John because John signals that the eschatological countdown has begun. Now, folks, once in a while, I have to justify the doctor before my name. Okay? So this is why I use words like eschatological. Okay? It makes me sound clever. Okay? But eschatological is related to eschatology. And eschatology is the branch of theology that is concerned with the the end times. Okay? The coming back of Christ and the redemption and, you know, the... New heavens and the new earth. That's eschatology. I can't even say it, so I'm not that clever. But another way of putting it would be the final countdown, right, has begun. Well, let me put it one more way. The clock has started where all these prophecies about the Messiah, the Savior, are about to come to pass, and Jesus is the fulfillment of them. So John starts that countdown, in a sense, by saying, the Lord is coming. And that's why we get so excited and so joyful about Christmas. That's why Advent is this season of joy and hope, because we know he is coming. And that is the best news you could ever, ever want to hear. Right? You're going to hear tomorrow, I'm going to be preaching on Christmas Eve. The title of the sermon is, The Best News Ever. Okay? And it really is. But you're going to have to come back tomorrow to find out about that one. A little teaser. And finally, through, through Jesus, we will receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, I can't emphasize what a, enough what a big deal that is. Because it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we have the power of God living and residing in us. By the way, can I just say that if you're a believer in Jesus, do you know that you have 
the living God residing in you right now. If you really believe that, that should completely change how you act and treat one another. We are image bearers of the living God, all of us, believers or not. But those of us who believe, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. We have the power of God living in us. And that power empowers each and every one of us to do good works that have been prepared for us in advance. Each and every one of you, God has a nice list of good works that he has prepared in advance for you to do. If we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't have anything. We just have empty rituals and customs. Okay. So in conclusion here, I want to leave you with three points. I've been told folks like my three points, so I'm going to give you three points. Number one, repent. You don't hear that very often from the pulpit anymore. Repent. You know why? Because it causes you to face yourself and your own demons. You know, maybe you make you think it makes me sound like, you know, some guy stood out Fenway Park with a sign saying, Repent! You know, handing out tracts. But I'm actually just relaying the message that John the Baptist and Jesus said. What does that mean? Well, if there are areas in your life of unconfessed sin, Are there areas in your life where a sin pattern plagues you? You're stuck in something you keep doing over and over again. The answer is to repent, is to confess it. Go before the Lord and confess it. Share it with a brother or sister that you trust. Get it out in the open. You know why sin has so much power over us? It's because we feel ashamed and embarrassed and full of guilt about those things in our life. And we don't share them with anybody We don't come before the Father. We don't feel worthy. That is a lie. When you confess and get that stuff out, it breaks the chain. It brings freedom. 1 John 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just. It doesn't say he will condemn you when you confess. He will forgive and purify. So number one, repent. Number two, actively swim against the current. Hmm. Well, that's not what conventional wisdom tells us, is it? We're actually told that if you get caught in a rip current or a rip tide, what you should actually do is swim per- perpendicular to the current until you get past the riptide and then swim to shore. But here I'm saying swim against the current because remember, in spiritual matters, remember that the the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. So when you swim against the current, yes, it's going to be hard work. It's going to be exhausting and it's going to feel pointless. And guess what? If you try to do it without the power of the Lord and the Holy Spirit, it will be. But remember, in that place of helplessness, that's where we leave room for the Holy Spirit to work. When we get rid of that spirit of independence that says, I'm all set, I can do it on my own. And when we suddenly realize that we're swimming and we can't get anywhere without his help, 
that's when we leave open the space for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. So remember, in that sense, if you're not swimming upstream against the world's current, you will be drifting away from God. And remember, the world is full of currents, isn't it, that want to pull us away from God. There is a current everywhere that wants to drag you. Remember that video we just watched? That wants to drag you off into the ocean and steal your life. So how do you swim against the current? Well, you make a daily habit of prayer and scripture. Don't be complacent. Prayer and this, they are your life jackets. That is the rock you can cling to that will stop you from drifting and drowning in a sea of despair. And thirdly, so we have repent, swim against the current, and thirdly, engage the Holy Spirit in your life. People often talk about the Holy Spirit is often the the neglected person in the Trinity. We like to talk about God the Father, and we like to talk about Jesus the Son, but the Holy Spirit's a little bit more, right? Holy Spirit is a person. So how do you engage the Holy Spirit in your life? You ask for the Holy Spirit. Ask that he would fill you and empower you to do his work. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11. Jesus says, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's Jesus right there saying, If you ask for the Holy Spirit, it will be given to you. So again, those three points, repent, actively swim against the current, and engage the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit into our lives right now. I'm going to pray, and I want to encourage you to pray in your hearts along with me, inviting the Holy Spirit to fill you, to fill this church. So dear Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you. Thank you so much that you... You have prophets who have prepared the way for us, that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to do what we could not. We thank you, Lord, that you love us so much. And Lord, we thank you that through your son, you have sent us the Holy Spirit. Lord, your word tells us that if we ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you will give us the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray, I pray for all of us sitting here this morning, Lord, Would your Holy Spirit just pour out upon us right now in the name of Jesus? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit, with your power, Lord? Just like it was on Pentecost, Lord. Fill us with boldness and courage that we would be equipped to share the good news that comes through you, Jesus. I pray for a new filling, a fresh filling in all of us, Lord, in this church. I pray that we would go out this week full of your joy, full of your hope, and full of your love. And we ask all this through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.